Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Why do questions of identity drive so much of the cultural conversation today? Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. That's a question that I'm excited to talk about with today's guest, Dr. Carl Truman. And from his latest book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. So we'll be talking about that in a minute, but a little bit about Dr. Truman He has his PhD from the University of Aberdeen. He's a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He is an esteemed church historian and previously served as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. Truman has authored or edited more than a dozen books, including The Creedal Imperative, Luther on the Christian Life, and Histories and Fallacies. And Truman is a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So, Dr. Truman, it's great to have you on the Impact 360 podcast today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into this fascinating and insightful book that you've written, I'd love to just introduce our audience to who you are and how you became a maybe a follower of Jesus and a little bit of your spiritual background. So kind of share with us a little bit about how you became a follower of Jesus and kind of how you've landed, end up doing what you are doing today. I know that in the short version, I'm sure that would be many conversations, but maybe give us a little overview of your story. Sure. Well, I'm a uh... I grew up in the United Kingdom. I'm English in background. I was converted sometime during my first year at college through the witness of friends and also through reading uh, some of the works of Dr. J.I. Packer. Hmm. Since then, I, I, I did my PhD, came to the United States in about 2001 to teach at a seminary, also served for a time as a pastor of a Presbyterian church in uh, just outside Philadelphia. I'm an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in 2018, I moved to Grove City College to teach humanities to undergraduates with a particular emphasis in biblical and religious studies. And so that's my sort of very brief story in, uh, in, in short compass. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing. Was it, uh, in particular, was there anything from Dr. J.I. Packer's reading uh, that really impacted you? Anything in particular? I, I'm a big Packer fan myself and love his, his works have been yeah. huge in my life as well. I mean, a lot of his books have been influential to me over the years, but the one that, that really crystallized the gospel for me was actually not one of his best known books, but a book called God's Words hmm. uh, that, uh, that a friend gave to me, actually a local Baptist pastor gave to me just before I went to, to university, and it was reading that my first term that, that uh, brought the, the power of the gospel home to me. That's, that's amazing. Um, that's awesome. You know, as I think about just kind of the, the moment we're in, I, I really appreciate your book, you know, at Impact 360, we'll work with the next generation. So we're kind of in the real world, um, year-round discipleship of Gen Z and teens and young adults, and you're interacting with them in terms of undergrad as well, at Grove City. And so this particular book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, was one that I was looking forward to digging into. Um, and so maybe before we dive into the particulars in a minute, but as a church historian, why did you write this book and, and why now? Well, I'm, my, my background and training is actually in 16th and 17th century church history. I'm a, a Reformationist and post-Reformationist in terms of my PhD and, and subsequent work. This book 
has a slightly different uh, trajectory in that I, I start really where I finish in the other books. I start in the 18th century. So it's, uh, it's a break with my typical academic work. The origins of it lay in, in, a, in a couple of things. One was a conversation, a three-way conversation I was having with Justin Taylor, who's the senior editor at Crossway, who published the book, and Rod Dreyer, who's senior editor at the American Conservative, an Eastern Orthodox Christian. And they were interested in getting somebody to write an introduction to the thought of Philip Reef, a, a philosophical sociologist uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, most famous for writing uh, a book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, in the 1960s. And so I started to do some work thinking about what would be necessary to put together a little introduction to Reef. And as I was working on that, I, I became, became clear to me that a more interesting book would be to actually use Reef and to apply his ideas to decoding some of the things that are going on in our society at the moment. And perhaps the most striking thing that was occurring were the dramatic transformation of uh, understandings of sexual morality and sexual identity. Uh, no sooner, for example, had the Supreme Court brought its judgment in uh, Bergefell v. Hodges, the gay marriage debate, than society was being faced with the, the dramatic tidal wave of trans ideology, spearheaded, of course, by Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner. And I was fascinated as to why these things were happening so quickly and so comprehensively. And so the book is really an attempt to to grapple with the, the issue of why the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, came to make plausible sense to so many people in such a short period of time. That was the, the kind of the focus, ultimately, of the, of the narrative. No, that's really helpful um, because, you know, culture moved very quickly in some ways, but I think what's not always fully understood or fully grasped and why I'm so grateful that you um, really wrote this book is is what are the dominoes and maybe the the climate the environment that had to be there to make that possible because you know all that stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum and I know we can dive into some of those things in particular but at a high level why would you say that identity is such a driving force for this generation and cultural moment like why why that question um, in in particular. I think identity has always been a, a force. There's a sense in which, you know, all human beings, we want to be free, but we also want to belong. And the belonging part really connects to the notion of, of our identity. How can we, how can I be myself and belong to a group? And in the past, there have been what I would describe as some fairly strong external context in which we can do that. You know, one could be an American. One could be a member of a family. One could be a member of a church. To the extent that the nation, the family, and the church are strong institutions, it's easy to find a sense of belonging in them. We live in an era where all three of those are in flux, if not in crisis, that the, the nation state is, is under great pressure at the moment. Our national narratives are being challenged at the deepest level. You know, was America founded in 1776 or in 1618? That's one of the, the big debates going on at the moment. The family has been torn apart over the last 50, 60 years, uh, both by uh, 
terrible tales of, of abusive families, but also by the way in which society itself has put tremendous pressure on the traditional family units. And religious institutions have uh, also both come under attack from the wider culture and have also fallen apart under their own internal scandals and corruption, whether it's the child abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church or something like the Ravi Zacharias uh, incident recently in, in broader evangelicalism. So we live in a time where the traditional institutions uh, for grounding our identity are weak or collapsing. And that leaves people in some ways all at sea. We, we want to find identities. And so what's emerged to fill the vacuum are, are a series of, of new identities, if you like, that are now claiming people's loyalties, that people are becoming passionate about. And we're living in, in some ways, the, the old world where the structures of the old identities, the institutions of the old identities are still in place. But we have these new identities emerging in powerful ways. And, and that's creating chaos, confusion, conflict within our society. So in answer to the question, I'd say, you know, identities have always been important, but we're living in a stage where identities are more up for grabs, perhaps, than they have been for many generations. Yeah, and I think that's that's extremely perceptive because that, that also points out to the different cultural forces, how that stuff plays out on social media or in broader cultural narratives that are that are going in terms of people wanting to belong. I think you're exactly right. As well as uh, what is the true self, right? Who who really am I, and who gets to decide that question? Um, and maybe we'll we'll come back to that in a moment. But as you were doing research for this book, I'm sure this probably was a several multi year process for you. But was there anything that just really surprised you as you dug into this topic more of ideas or shaping forces or uh, any particular events that that may have occurred that that kind of brought us to this moment. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the thing that most surprised me was, or the thing that most fascinated me was how widespread the issues are, that we tend often as Christians particularly, we can tend to think in terms of us and them, and we can identify you know, the sexual revolution and the, the mavericks of the leaders of the sexual revolution, and we can tend to, to see them as the problem and not realize that actually the sexual revolution and the sexual revolutionaries are just one particular manifestation of a broader understanding of the self that exists in society in which we're all complicit. So I think the most surprising thing on that front to me was, you know, how deeply we are all embedded in the notion of the self that happens at the moment to be manifesting itself most dramatically in terms of sexual identity politics and perhaps racial identity politics. So that was probably the most surprising thing. The most surprising event uh, was, I think, realizing that marriage was not redefined in 2015 with Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court decision. Actually, I think marriage was redefined in 1970 when Governor Ronald Reagan of California signed no-fault divorce into law. And at a stroke of the pen, really change marriage from a lifelong bond to a sentimental union between two people that could be dissolved 
once uh, it had ceased to provide one or both parties with the happiness they were looking for. So that was the, the sort of the, the stunning thing to me was, wow, even the issue of marriage is much, much deeper than simply uh, looking at the dynamics of the specific judgment in Obergefell v. Hodges. No, that that's really helpful. That's really helpful context. You know, one of the things uh, that you mentioned in your book, you actually define the term um, expressive individualism. What what is that, and why did you feel like it was important to kind of kind of encapsulate uh, that idea? Yeah, it's a term that was first coined, I think, by a man called Robert Bella, a sociologist in uh, I think in the nineteen eighties, in his book Habits of the Heart, and. Bella's argument, which I think is now generally accepted, is that the the normative understanding of what it means to be a human being is captured by the term expressive individualism. And expressive individualism is the idea that the most important things about me are my inner feelings, and that I am at my most authentic, or that I flourish most, or I am at my most fulfilled when I am able to act out in public according to those inner feelings. So, you know, the expressive individual is the, is the one who, you know, emotes in public, we might say. And when you think of, you know, take an extreme example, think of Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner in the interview with Diane Sawyer when he was coming out as trans and indicating his, that he was going to be transitioning. The language is very interesting in that he talks there about sort of all my life I've lived a lie, I've played the role that society has made me play, now I'm going to be free to be myself, now I can be the person outwardly that I've always been inwardly. That's a great example of expressive individualism. Here's somebody saying, you know, inwardly I have these thoughts, these desires, these feelings. Society has never allowed me to express them. Finally, I'm able to express them. And guess what? That makes me truly me. It makes me an authentic person. And Bella's argument, as I say, which I think is widely accepted now, is that that is generally speaking how we all think of ourselves in the West today. We, 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 we grant a lot of authority to our inner feelings. And we tend to think that if we're not allowed to express those inner, inner feelings in an outward fashion in public, then we are being hindered from being truly ourselves. That is really insightful. You know, working with students and seeing this as well, as well as the temptation in my own life and heart is, you know, to kind of frame it as, look, how, how you feel doesn't determine what's real. And and then trying to start there, because I think you're right. There, That's such a dominant assumption, I think, in terms of what, you know, the fulfillment looks like, what happiness is ultimately attached to that. Um, you know, we did research on, on Gen Z and our brand new research with the Barna Group recently and released that where, you know, 51% of you know, Gen Z, the highest rate of any generation, the goal in life is what? To be happy, right? And it's usually defined probably along the lines of some version of what you just defined in terms of expressive individualism plus pleasure and comfort thrown in there as well. And so I think that's interesting. How do you see and, and what's your perception of how Christians are doing having a different understanding? Or, or have we all kind of largely bought into this idea of the modern self as well? Or kind of what, what do you see there in terms of, um, are, we, are we thinking any differently about it as Christians generally and by and large? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think I need to, to sort of just qualify what I've, I've said a little bit. And let's say, when I talk about expressive individualism, I'm not necessarily meaning it's an unconditionally bad thing. 
Mm -hmm. It's just a thing, if you like. It can have a good side and a bad side. And I would say that that one of the good things that expressive individualism gets is our feelings are important to who we are. Uh, And it's important that we have, you know, we're emotional beings and we acknowledge that. And certainly Christianity uh, has frequently acknowledged the importance of that. I was preaching in the college chapel just this morning to the students, talking about the Psalms of Lament. If you look at the Psalms, there's a lot of emotion in the Psalms. So to the extent that expressive individualism acknowledges the existence and importance of emotions and feelings, to that extent, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. Uh, it's also, I think, a good thing in the way that it, it, it tends to press upon individual responsibility for identity. And there's certainly a strong strand in the New Testament that presses home the the existential urgency of the gospel, that the individual has to grasp the gospel, has to feel the gospel, has to believe the gospel. So those things are good things. And I want to say all of those touch on good Orthodox Christianity. So to that extent, any good Orthodox Christian is going to is going to have a a flavor of expressive individualism uh, about them. On the other hand, I, I think that, that expressive individualism can also lead, as you pointed out in, in your comments on the Barna research, it can lead to a focus upon me, upon my rights, rather than upon my obligations. And it can lead to a, a, a collapsing of the notion of, of, human, of the human good into my individual personal happiness. And are Christians affected by that? Yes. And in some ways, again, uh, uh, another good thing can actually fuel that. When you think about freedom of religion, freedom of religion is a good thing. Who doesn't want to live in a, a country where there isn't freedom of religion? Pray regularly on a Sunday in church these days for believers in China because they don't enjoy freedom of religion there and, and they suffer persecution. Uh, it's a good thing to live in a nation where there's freedom of religion. The downside of that, of course, is it means there are a lot of religions that are free, and there are a lot of churches to choose from. And when you have a a wide variety of churches to choose from, the dynamic of of the religion can change. And religion becomes a personal choice, not simply in in the New Testament sense of having an existential urgency for the individual to close with Christ, but in the sense of I've got a dozen varieties of Christianity I can choose from. I'm going to choose the one that, that scratches where I itch. I'm going to choose the one that makes me feel good. So I think there are, there are elements in, in American Christian culture that tilt us towards uh, allowing expressive individualism to, to really come to shape the way we think about Christianity. And then finally, I'd add, when you look at all the modern praise songs, a lot of modern praise songs, not all of them, but, uh, but many of them can be rather too preoccupied with personal feelings and with, with what God is going to do for me to make me happy rather than, say, an acknowledgement of, of God's glory and greatness. No, I think that's that's really helpful context and framing, you know, emotion, you know, God made us whole beings, body and soul. And so emotion is a part of that. Those are good things. Right. And then to putting those in the proper context, but not maybe ultimate things in terms of the way that's ultimately come to be expressed um, today. And so I really appreciate that. My conversation today is with Dr. Carl Truman. He is the author of the new book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. 
uh, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, too, and, and one of the things that you highlight in your work that I think is important is the the role of cultural imagination. And so how did, how did the cultural imagination get to where we're at today? And, and what role did, did the sexual revolution kind of play in that kind of as you kind of document that kind of what were the what changed um, in the way that people began to envision those things? Yeah, well, cultural imagination is a it's it's difficult to explain in absolute terms why any culture has the particular imagination it has. And you know, to clarify, when we're talking cultural imagination. I think broadly, we're talking about the the intuitions we have, the things we don't even think about that shape how we relate to the world, how we instinctively think about the world. So uh, how any culture generates its own specific cultural imagination, that's often a complicated story. It's a, a mixture of the literature that's floating around. It's, it's facilitated by the technology, by forms of entertainment, by whether you live in cities, whether you live in the countryside. All of these things play into that. So that's just a general comment on the, the complexity of, of breaking down the nature of and the reasons for a particular cultural imagination. If we were to, to start with where we are now, though, and, uh, and go back to that transgender question, you know, what is it that makes transgenderism plausible? Why is it that if you went to a doctor 100 years ago and said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would say to you, okay, we have a problem with your mind. We need to bring your mind into conformity with your body. Whereas today, a doctor might well be in serious trouble for giving that answer. The doctor really is obliged to say, okay, we've got a problem with your body. We need to bring your body into line with your mind. When you think about the contrast in those two things, what's, what's happened is that we now live in a world where feelings, inner psychology has been granted much greater authority than ever previously in the history of humanity to the extent that physical reality, physiological reality of our bodies uh, has to give way uh, before the psychological convictions of our minds. So big part of our culture, of the, of the change in our cultural imagination is how did that come about? How have we got to a point where that inner space has such authority? Well, I'd say a number of things play into that. One, there's a strong uh, strand of, of elite cultural thinking really from the late 17th century onwards, which prioritizes the inner life as that which is most certain. Philosopher like Descartes, for example, grounds epistemological certainty, certainty of knowledge in, in his own think, thought processes. That he thinks indicates to him he must exist. Uh, Rousseau sees uh, our desires, our sentiments, our inner emotions as being the things that make us truly moral. And reconnecting with them is important. This is picked up by the romantics. Romantic poetry, romantic painting, uh, romantic music is all designed to, to accent that inner space, that inner psychological space. So one thing that has to happen in the cultural imaginary is we might say the cultural elites have to start arguing that the inner space is the most important thing. So then we, we can then add to that psycho um, technology. Uh, what does technology do? Well, technology doesn't just enable us to do the same things faster. Technology actually allows us to change the world. Uh, technology feeds the intuition that we all have that we're in control and that nature is just stuff. 
and we can bend it to our wills. We can make nature conform to the patterns of our minds, to the patterns of that inner space. And we know how deep that intuition goes. When you look at the the panic and hysteria that surrounded the COVID thing, when suddenly nature has bitten back and we realize we are not quite in control as we thought we were, modern man doesn't know how to handle that. Modern man does not know how to handle that situation. So technology, too, uh, if, uh, if the elites prioritize the inner space, technology weakens the grip of the external material world as well. And then in the modern era, when you throw into the mix um, something like the entertainment industry, uh, and you see the way in which uh, inner feelings are prioritized via the entertainment industry, and particularly the way those inner feelings are profoundly sexualized by the entertainment industry. Then we start to move into the arena where, okay, now we can begin to understand the sexual revolution. Sexual revolution comes from prioritizing the inner space, sexualizing that inner space, and then having the technology to act on that inner space, whether it's in the form of the contraceptive pill in the 1960s or transgender hormone treatment and surgery today. So all of those things play a role, I think, in transforming the cultural imagination relative to who we are, relative to the world around us. No, that's that's really helpful. And I wondered, you know, as a historian, it'd be super helpful if you could uh, maybe highlight briefly a couple of the key figures and thoughts. I know you, you've written a lot about this and document it in your book, whether it's Rousseau or Marx or Freud or Marcuse or whoever. Could you kind of connect a few dots, kind of lay that map over some of that timeline of what you just mentioned? I think it's helpful sometimes, especially as Christians, for us to understand the history of some of these ideas and figures who yeah. elevated them into the cultural imagination. Yeah, sure. We can break, in the book, I break the narrative down into three sort of historical phases or moments. First one is the, uh, the prioritizing of the inner self. And, you know, as I said, you could talk about Descartes there in the book. I, I really start with Rousseau and then connect him to the Romantics because the Romantics are the, the cultural elite who sort of popularize Rousseau's notion of the authentic inner self. Um, then in the 19th century, in their different ways, Hegel, um, Hegel Marx, uh, Nietzsche, and Freud all get rid of the idea of human nature. Now, they don't, they don't get rid of human nature in terms of a biological reality. What I mean by that is they all get rid of the idea that being human carries with it a specific moral structure. Being human has no moral significance for Marx, Nietzsche, or Darwin in their different ways. And so that inner space becomes something of a moral vacuum. Next stage in the process is that inner space gets sexualized. And that's Sigmund Freud. Freud's a very influential thinker and essentially says, you know, what makes human beings human? It's not reason. It's not rationality. It's not the things actually that they do that, that constitute civilization. What really makes human beings human is the fact that they have these dark, irrational, difficult to control sexual desires. And human life can be explained really in, in us wrestling to control these inner sexual desires. Well, what Freud does there is, is twofold. One, he sexualizes that inner space. So the inner space now has content, it's sexual content. Secondly, he turns sex from being an activity into an identity. When you think about how sex is presented in the Bible, it's something people do. 
There are legitimate ways of engaging in it, and there are illegitimate ways of engaging in it, but it's an act or a set of actions. Once you say that human beings are defined by their sexual desires, you actually create a situation where human identity is defined by sex. Sex is something you are, not something you do. It's why now we can talk about you know, the LGBTQ movement. You know, somebody can say, I'm gay or I'm straight. They may never have had a sexual experience in their entire life. They may never have engaged in sexual activity. They're talking about their inner desire or sexual orientation or desire. And they're giving it the status of defining who they are at the deep core of their being. So Freud is critical. And once you have uh, the sexualization of the self, inevitably sex is going to get politicized because rules about sex become rules about who is a legitimate person and who is not a legitimate person. You mentioned Marcuse in the question. Uh, Herbert Marcuse of the Frankfurt School would be one example of somebody who really does drill down into this idea of uh, sex and politics, that when the revolution comes, the revolution has to be sexual revolution because to transform who people are, you have to abolish traditional sexual codes. And that really sets up the play for where we are today. Few people have read Marcuse today. Few people would identify with the new left or with the sexual revolution. But actually, sexual identity politics is pretty much the air we breathe. We all think that way to some extent. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's key because all those ideas get embedded in artifacts of culture. They get embedded in technology, the stories we tell, the entertainment industry, uh, even the way that news works, what's covered, what's not, how it's framed, how events that happen day-to-day -day in life are interpreted. And so all of that um, comes to fruition. But it only can do that because of those historical antecedents, like you talked about, those, those people that came before, almost making those little subtle changes along the way. To, to make things more plausible or to build upon kind of some of those previous ideas. And I think it's so helpful to see where we're at because then hopefully we can understand the times a little bit better and how to, how to better engage um, around it. You know, one of the things that um, I think you've talked about before, which, which I appreciate is the notion of relevance. How important is the, the idea of being culturally relevant as a Christian? Is there a danger there? I know there's some probably good intentions to be a part of that, but can that be a not a good pursuit for Christians as well, trying to talk about and engage where culture is at and where it's going? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Of course, it, it often comes down to what you mean by relevance. Uh, I would certainly want to say the church has to be relevant. The church has to be proclaiming the gospel, and there's nothing more relevant than the proclamation of the gospel uh, to people. Often, though, when people say relevance, they tend to mean something along the lines of the church should have its, its emphases or its agenda set by the priorities of the culture around. And that's a different question. Um, I would say that uh, a very relevant uh, church service might be one that is completely irrelevant to the priorities of the world around us. Uh, Paul himself, when he's talking about, you know, when an unbeliever wanders into one of your assemblies, he's going to be struck, he's going to be struck with fear because he knows that some, something, you know, you're worshipping 
an awesome and terrifying God. That's the, the kind of the implication there. And I would say often when we talk about relevance, we mean transforming our services or the way we talk into ways that the world doesn't find offensive. Well, in which case we make ourselves irrelevant through our inoffensiveness. Paul clearly sees the holiness of God as an extremely relevant thing and an extremely countercultural thing at the same time. At the same time, I do think we need to be relevant to the extent that we, also, we, we do need to be thinking about providing particularly younger people with answers to the pungent questions that are being posed to them by the culture around. I, I remember when I was a pastor being at a session meeting and we were dealing with uh, somebody who was struggling at the time with internet pornography. And I remember speaking to one of the older elders during the meeting and saying, did you ever imagine 20 years ago that this would be a topic you'd be having to discuss? So the, the things that get thrown up by the culture that are of urgent importance to our young people, they do change over time. And it's important that the church addresses those. So again, should the church be relevant or not? The answer is both. No, it should not be relevant if relevant means simply uh, dancing to the tune of the culture around about. But absolutely, it should be relevant in terms, particularly, I think, internally, of answering the questions that its own people are asking because they're being asked themselves by the wider culture. Yeah, I would I would agree completely with that because, you know, the questions that, that teens and young adults ask, I mean, if we're not talking about them as followers of Jesus and the church and leaders and teachers, then they're just going to get one-sided answers from everyone around them. And so we've got to have enough cultural IQ to be able to help them navigate and understand those things, but also not allow the culture to drive even what we emphasize the most um, as Christians in terms of, you know, the, the questions and the agenda of the day or services or things like that. So that's really helpful insight. And one of the things you've talked about before as well is, is this idea, especially working with the next generation, how do you see this playing out and how they think about like the idea of a culture war versus like engagement or persuasion? Like, what is that? What do you think ought to be kind of the way forward? And what's, what's your take as, as a professor who works with students today, how they react to some of that language or, or maybe even how they misunderstand perhaps some of that or, or want yeah. to think about it better? Yeah. And I think one of the things is that, you know, the Bible does use very martial language when it talks about the, the, the spiritual struggle of this age. There is a spiritual warfare going on. What I think is, is problematic in the way that we've come to talk about culture war is it tends to be rather warlike. And Christians engaging the culture war tend to look rather like non-Christians engaging the culture war, mm -hmm. just on the opposite side. I tend to, one of the ways I've tried to, to talk to students about thinking about the church is think about the church as, as, a, as a place of cultural protest. The warfare we're engaged in is actually demonstrated by uh, cultural protests. And how do we do that? We do that by being the church, by being people who walk to the beat of a different drum, by being people who exhibit the love of Christ in the midst of the culture in which we find ourselves. So that's one thing uh, I, I like to stress to the students. Secondly, I find students are not responsive to martial rhetoric on the culture. Uh, and I see my task as a professor. My task is to persuade. You know, bottom line for me is I want to get the students to where I think they need to be. And how I get them there, well, that, that's a different issue. I, I need to think very carefully about that. And I find that persuasion is a much better way 
of bringing students along than, than warlike confrontation, if I could put it that way. And that leads me to, to rethink some of the ways we, we teach. And, and I've used this example a couple of times over the last few months. You know, when students at Grove, many of them are Christian. If one of them Christian students would come to me and say, you know, is homosexuality wrong? And I would say yes. And they would say why? And I'd say, well, look at these Bible passages. The Bible indicates it's wrong at these points. That's probably going to be good enough for them to an extent. But I know at the back of their minds, they're going to be asking the question, but has God just made homosexuality wrong because he doesn't want people to be happy? He wants to spoil their lives. He doesn't want my gay friends to flourish. Is that why? Is God just a killjoy? And that's where I think what I would call subsidiary arguments become very helpful, particularly arguments based on what I call natural law or the theology of the body. The idea there is simply that, that the way we are made has a certain moral structure to it. To put it sort of in really blunt terms, human beings are made to flourish if they behave sexually in some ways and not in others. That our very bodies witness to that. And so I think one of the things that the church needs to do as it's teaching its young people is, is not simply point to the Bible verses, not simply to shout Bible verses louder, but to show students that the Bible teaches this and it actually makes perfect sense that the Bible teaches this because, hey, look at the way your body's made or look at the way nature flows. Look, look at this. Look at that. So I think we, we need to realize that you know, Bible verses clearly, you know, at some level, you know, that is the absolutely decisive thing. But the Bible can be easier to believe if it's set in the context of subsidiary arguments as well. Yeah, absolutely, because you kind of give them the why underneath it, the what explains it, the biblical authority is key, but like all of us, and especially students, they're like, okay, but, but is it true? Like, why is this true? Yeah. How does this yeah. work? What's the bigger question? And that I think that's exactly right. It's a lot of what we try to do here at Impact 360 is help understand the what and clarify that. Just, hey, there is a body of truth that's revelation from God, but then, well, why is it that way? And that's what I love about how you approach that topic as well. And it's so helpful. Um, you know, as you think about this, moving forward, given the pressures um, in particular around identity um, that we all face, but especially the next generation, what would it look like to really, in our discipleship to the Lord Jesus, to pursue biblical identity right now? I know there's lots of different ways to think about that sexually, racially, ethnicity, all sorts of different conversations that are happening right now. But as disciples, do you have any thoughts on, given where we're at and the, the tensions and pulls that we have, what that could look like for us to be intentional moving forward? Well, I think first and foremost, it looks like being involved in a church. Uh, I was just teaching this morning on the doctrine of God, and we moved from the doctrine of God to, to the church. I said, you know, the Bible doesn't know anything about Lone Ranger Christians. The Bible talks about the body of Christ. The Bible deals with a corporate entity, the church. So basic to Christian discipleship in this age, as in any age, is being a member, an active participating member in the corporate worship of the church. That's absolutely basic. And as I hinted earlier, that can be an act of, cultural protest, gathering together one day a week just to ascribe glory to the Lord. That's a countercultural, culturally protesting action. Uh, 
these days. So that's certainly important. Secondly, I think we need to think very carefully about how that connects to our citizenship. And, you know, for many generations in the West, uh, it's been easy to be a Christian and a good citizen because the broad generic values of our nation have been the values of Christianity by and large. Uh, in terms of outward behavior. That's rapidly changing. It's rapidly changing, and it means we're going to have to think more carefully than than the previous generation on how to negotiate the relationship of our identities as citizens of the heavenly city and simultaneously citizens of the earthly city. And that's where I think we need to to think, uh, and uh, along the lines of Augustine, the great... 4th, 5th century uh, early church father in his great work, The City of God. It's actually book 19 where he says, you know, living in the earthly city as Christians, we can share loves with those who are just members of the earthly city. Civil peace, for example, order, law and order. Uh, There are all kinds of things that Christians and non-Christians desire together in the earthly communities they find themselves. And I think we need to think long and hard on that and realize that, yes, there are many ways in which we can stand shoulder to shoulder with our pagan friends, our pagan neighbors. There are many goods that we desire in common and we can work for. But we also need to realize that there's a time coming where some of those things may be things that as Christians we can't legitimately go along with. Maybe we can't use those pronouns that we're being required to use about that particular person. Maybe we can't participate in that particular ceremony for that particular couple. And there are going to come moments when we have to protest the culture more directly by non-participating in in something that the culture itself might regard as a, a civic good. I think we have to think long and hard about where those lines are to be drawn and then pray that the Lord will give us the courage to stand on the right side of those lines when they occur. That's really helpful. I actually anticipated the last question I was going to ask you, so I'll see if there's anything else you wanted to say, because the question I was going to ask was, what does courage look like as we go further and further into a post-Christian culture in a secularized environment? And so you mentioned some of those things, but maybe do you have one in particular that you might highlight maybe for kind of the older generations and then also maybe for the younger generation where we need to maybe have courage the most right now and pray for God's boldness there? Yeah, I think uh, for the younger generation, courage may be required in, in refusing to wear that rainbow armband at school on the day when it's being demanded of you or something like that. Or, you know, that, that could be an example of courage. I tend to think that people like me in academia and particularly in sort of Christian academia, tend to identify courage with speaking out against the problems in the culture. It's very easy to speak out against the problems of the culture when you have a job like I have. Not so easy to do when you're a public school teacher or when you're a kid at school uh, or when you're working for a company and might lose your job by speaking out. So I I think that we need to think of, of courage. Courage is probably not what we... It's probably not going to be most obviously seen in our leaders because they have little to lose in some ways when they speak from positions of Christian security. Courage, I think, is going to be seen uh, in the little things done by people that you've never heard of in the public square 
but who are taking courageous stances in their workplace. For younger people, it could be a stand at school. For older people, it could be a stand in a workplace or a club or a professional society. But I think it's going to be, it's not going to look like a heroic leader of the faith taking a stand. It's going to look like lots of ordinary people taking a stand. Well, amen. I think that's that's great encouragement and great clarity. And uh, Lord, I, I pray the Lord's boldness for all of us to, to be courageous you know, in this moment that we find ourselves in. And if you're listening to this podcast right now and and you have questions about these things, this is an excellent book uh, to look into, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution in terms of just kind of tracing what has happened and kind of where we're at um, as a culture in that cultural imagination. But also, if you're a parent, a mom or a dad, a grandparent, and you have a teen or a young adult um, and have questions about the next generation and what even what the latest research is telling us or how to disciple them in this, I want to encourage you to check out our brand new research at genzlab.com. Genzlab.com, you can find out and get some access to great equipping in regards to that, as well as our experiences. We have a nine-month fellows experience, which is a nine-month gap year for 18 to 20-year-olds. We are taking applications right now for that, as well as our summer experiences, one-week propel and two-week immersion for high school students. We also have a master's experience. So just some different ways that we can help equip you and the people uh, in your life to walk with with Jesus well um, during this moment. So check that out at impact360.org. But um, Dr. Truman, any last thoughts or words about just kind of what what you're encouraged by in terms of kind of what you're seeing and maybe some places where people are being courageous or are living out a countercultural Christian identity? Oh, well, I, I think in, in more, I was going to actually answer the question in more general terms. I think, first of all, uh, don't, uh, don't lose sight of the promises, the promises to the church. The church is going to win. The things that we're facing at the moment are the things that are passing away. It's the heavenly, eternal things that are the important uh, things for us to, to focus on. And secondly, I, I think as the church has pushed the margins of society, it's appropriate to lament that. You know, nobody wants to be marginalized, but let's not spend all our time lamenting. I think at some point you've got to stop lamenting and you've got to see it as an opportunity. One of the great things about being marginal is being marginal tends to generate strong communities and strong communities become powerful communities and punch above their weight. So I think there there is reason for hope and encouragement, even as we see the church being squeezed at this point. The church is being squeezed in a way that I think in the long term will make us stronger and more powerful. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, again, my guest today has been Dr. Carl Truman. Um, the book, um, be sure to get a copy, is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And uh, just, Dr. Truman, I so appreciate your scholarship and the clarity in which you have thought about these issues and written about them and help us apply and think better about them today. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, John. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.